Good to be with you. Thank God for spring, for spring weather. It's finally getting nice, I think. It might be a little chilly today, but I believe the sun is going to be out. It's wonderful to finally see the changing of the seasons, the plants and flowers coming to life, the warmer weather. It's a welcome, welcome change. Um, spring, for many of us, has a profound impact on, on mood, on outlook. I definitely have been feeling it this week, right? Like I'm done with the cold, rainy mud. Bring on the sunshine. It brings change, not just around us, but, but even inside of our hearts, it does something, does something to change a person each spring. But what is it that really changes us? It has to be more than the weather, right? Loads of things in life change a person. Your age changes you. Your body maybe experiences new aches and pains, but hopefully as you get older, you become wiser, you become more resilient. All sorts of relationships can change a person, right? Think back to the first time you ever fell in love and how that just changed your outlook on life and, and, and how you saw other people and saw things. How about when you got married? Big change there, right? Everything pretty much changes when you get married, how to make decisions and manage your money. You got to figure out how to sleep in the bed next to somebody, which may or may not be an ongoing challenge in marriage, right? Hardships. Hardships change a person. When you lose a job or, God forbid, experience the loss of a loved one, that changes you. Tragedy changes you deep down. It can radically alter your view of life. How about parenthood? When you, for the first time, hold your daughter, you become a mom or a dad, all of a sudden, your entire perspective, everything in life, you see differently. Things like stairs and bikes and swings now all of a sudden are risk factors, right? Potential ER trips. All sorts of things that change us. Of course, this morning we're talking about and we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And, and here's, here's what I want you to, to see and hear this morning. Yes, I want you to know that the resurrection is the central event of all history. Yes, I want you to know that the resurrection truly is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. But the resurrection is also what truly and fundamentally can change us from the inside out. My prayer today is that you don't just learn about the events surrounding the resurrection or even just that you you walk away having a good celebration, celebrating the resurrection, but that today, this morning, that you are truly changed by the resurrection, by the risen Christ, that he would come and infuse you with life, that you'd be empowered by the resurrection, that through the resurrection, you would live by his spirit. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 8, 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. That means this great promise in this verse means that the same Holy Spirit that filled that tomb that first Easter morning that rose Jesus from the dead through faith, he can dwell in your heart. He can dwell in your life. And if he brought life to Jesus' dead body, how will he not also bring life to our mortal flesh to overcome not only physical death one day, in eternity, but even now to overcome sin and temptation and struggle and fear, he is bringing life. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just that he died for you to take away your sin and your old life, but that he rose for you to bring you into new life. Some of you maybe saw this week the blog that I put out called Four Ways the Resurrection Saves You, right? The resurrection has power and meaning to change us. The resurrection validates Jesus' identity, proves and demonstrates that he truly was the Son of God, that his sacrifice was accepted. The resurrection is what achieves our new birth. We're born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection that brings us into life with God. But the resurrection is also what empowers us to live the Christian life. 
As we just heard a few moments ago, it's not up to us to to check off a to-do list, but through the resurrection, we can be empowered to walk with God and live with God. And finally, the resurrection is what secures our future resurrection into eternal life. Because one day we'll all die, but we'll not all remain dead. In Christ, we'll pass from this life to the next to walk with God, to live with God for eternity. Just as Jesus conquered death, so do each and every one of his followers. See, but to receive these four benefits of the resurrection, to be changed by Christ, you have to believe. You have to believe in Him. You have to believe that He's Savior, that He died to conquer sin and death, that He rose to fill you with His resurrection power. And only through faith does that same Spirit that rose Him from the dead fill your heart and raise you up to new life. And so my prayer this morning is that we're stirred and filled with faith, that we too would be changed We're going to do that this morning by looking at John 20. The last several weeks, we've been following Jesus as he walks to the cross and to the tomb. We've been looking at John's gospel in our series, The Crucified Risen Savior. And this morning, we're going to watch those first disciples go to the empty tomb, and we're going to see how they are changed by the resurrection. If you were here with us Friday night, we read through the account of Jesus' crucifixion. And we read how after Jesus died on the cross, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these Jews, members of the ruling class, got permission from the Roman authorities to take down the body of Jesus, to have him properly buried in a nearby garden cemetery. A proper burial would not have been normal for a a, a criminal, a criminal that had strung up on a wooden cross. But they want to honor Jesus. They want to give him a respectable Jewish burial. And so they anoint him on Friday evening with oil, with spices. They wrap him in linen and they set him in a, in a tomb cut into the rock. They do this, excuse me, late Friday afternoon. It would have just been before sundown. Now in the Jewish mind, uh, Saturday begins at sundown on Friday. Saturday was the Sabbath, the day that you needed to stay home and rest if you were a faithful Jew. And so this morning we pick up in, in John chapter 20. It's now Sunday, it's now the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we're going to read the account of those first disciples going to the tomb, and we're going to see how their lives were dramatically changed by the resurrection. So let's pray together, and we'll read the Word of God with me from John chapter 20. Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence here among us already, for your spirit that has stirred, and we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and fill the words of Scripture Stir our hearts, give us an attentiveness, give us ears to hear your voice, to see things that we haven't seen, to be reinforced again in the work of Christ, to be grounded in your grace, grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Make us new, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that there must, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went away and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Amen. Amen. Love this passage. Excited to unpack with you this morning. The account, of course, begins with Mary Magdalene. She was a dedicated disciple of Jesus. She had served Jesus in the apostles. Before meeting Jesus, the scripture tells us that she was plagued with demonic spirits. Jesus had miraculously healed her and transformed her. And she had become a faithful follower of Jesus until the end. Along with the apostle John, with Jesus' mother, she stayed with Jesus to the crucifixion at the burial. And early Sunday morning, She arrives before dawn to visit the tomb to pay homage to her crucified Savior. The other Gospels tell us she went with other women as well. They came and brought additional anointing spices to honor the body. But when she arrives, we see in verse 2, she notices something right away, that the large stone sealing the tomb had been rolled away. Now it's interesting, rather than go investigate or look around for Jesus, she immediately runs back to the city to tell the other disciples what she's found. She assumes, she just assumes, well, the tomb's open, enemies must have come. Enemies must have come and taken away the body. They're trying to further humiliate Jesus. They're trying to further stop his followers and prevent us from from turning this tomb into a gathering place, a place of veneration. And so she's operating under this false assumption. We can watch her again and again follow through with this false assumption that the body has been stolen. Now, what's interesting is that on multiple occasions, Jesus had prophesied. He had said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed and rise again on the third day. But neither Mary nor the apostles got it. They didn't understand. They were thick-headed. They didn't hear Jesus when he said. And so we find again and again, the initial reaction to the disciples is to doubt. They assume that something else has happened. They don't assume that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so after she tells the disciples, we see in verse 3, that Peter and the other disciple, that's John's China way to be humble. He doesn't refer to himself in his gospel, but it's the disciple whom Jesus loves. It's John who wrote the gospel. Peter and John, full of emotion, full of uncertainty. What do they do? They run. They run towards the tomb. They want to investigate for themselves. Mary returns with them. And we're told in verses 4 to 5 that that John arrives first. John is typically thought to be the youngest of the apostles. So he outruns the slow old Peter. Okay, and I like how John just kind of throws that in there. By the way, I got there first. But he doesn't go inside. It says that he stoops down to look into the tomb. Now, it might seem odd to you that he would have stooped down. Most children's Bibles kind of picture a big, large cave with a big opening. But many scholars, if you look at this picture, 
Suppose that the tombs of that day would have looked like this, right? They would have been, been large caverns, but would have had a narrow opening that expanded up. And so down where you see the red arrow, that would have been the opening to the tomb. The rest of that scene is, is kind of a cutout that, of course, would have been covered. And so, so what does John do when he arrives? He stoops down. He gets down and he looks inside to see what's going on in the tomb, to investigate. He doesn't go in, but we see that Peter arrives. Peter arrives and he does go in, right? Peter's the bold, brash one. And so we see there in verse 6 that he goes right into the tomb. And what does he see? He sees the grave clothes of Jesus. And he notices another significant detail. Both of them see the burial clothes lying on the bench where the body would have been laid. The body in that time would have been wrapped in linen cloth, similar to what we think of like a mummy. But when Peter goes in, he sees something else noteworthy. He sees the face cloth that's separate folded up neatly, lying in a separate place from the other wrappings. See, the body would have been wrapped in probably one large piece of linen, but a separate face cloth would have gone over the face of the deceased. Now, why is that important? Why is it important to notice how the the clothes were lying, to notice that the face cloth was, was folded up separately from the rest of the linen in a different spot? We see why it's important in verse 8. John goes in, and he notices the same thing that Peter notices. He sees the grave clothes. He sees... The way things are laid, and he has his aha moment. See, John looks at the state of the tomb, he looks at the clothes, and he realizes, wait a minute. No, no grave robbers have taken the body of Jesus. They wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap the body. They wouldn't have taken the time to neatly wrap the face cloth. And so verse 8 says that John sees what's in the tomb and he believes. He has faith. He believes that Jesus has risen from the grave. See, the evidence that John found that morning, that morning in the tomb convinced him that Jesus was alive because a dead man had come back to life, had woken up, had unwrapped himself, has left, left his grave clothes behind. Jesus, as his mom taught him, had neatly folded things up and sat them aside before he left, walked out of the tomb, and he had risen. And John says, there's something more going on here than, than, than thieves seeking to put down the following of Jesus. Now look, John, like Mary, was not expecting the resurrection, but he believed that day. And verse 10 tells us that he and Peter go back. They presumably go back to report to the others what they have found. But that morning, John believed he was changed by the resurrection. He was never the same. Now, what is it that led him to this transformation? How is it that John came to believe that morning in the resurrection? It was through an investigation, through an investigation of the tomb. Through looking at the evidence, he was changed. And I want to highlight three things in this section that I believe enabled John's journey of faith, that enabled him to be transformed as he was changed through an investigation. The the first one is this. The first one is, is to learn from the example of others. See, John would have never gone to the tomb that morning, I don't think, if Mary hadn't come to tell him, hey, something's going on. Right? He listened to Mary's report. He, John goes to the tomb. I don't know whether John would have ever gone inside to look more closely unless what? Unless Peter had gone in first. Do you see that? John follows the example of Peter. Friends, if you're here this morning and you want to be genuinely changed, if you want to know the truth of Christ, if you want to be changed by the resurrection, if you want to find the faith that John found, you have to surround yourself with faithful people. Listen and watch the testimony of others. Learn from the example of others. That's a good and right way to investigate. Investigate truth. Investigate faith. 
See, because often faith grows in community, not in isolation. In isolation, there's all sorts of distractions and discouragements from your own heart and from the world and from our spiritual enemy, the devil, that can lead you away from faith. But when we surround ourselves with Marys and with Peters that are also seeking to know the truth, we can be encouraged. I love Sunday mornings here at at Living Hope, but I love our small groups. I love our life groups and our core groups and our accountability groups because we get to watch we get to learn from the testimony of others. Jillian Woleski's in our life group. I love having Jillian in our life group because, yes, of that profound joy that the Lord's given you, because of your honesty and your willingness to share your struggles. And her testimony is powerful. And we hear from one another. We learn from one another. And I would say to you this morning, if you're a young woman here and you're struggling in faith, struggling to believe, struggling to live out what it means to walk with Christ, ask Jillian if you can get coffee. She'd love to get coffee with you to learn from her. And there's many others here today, not that they have it all together, but that they've seen God work in their lives. See, often investigating the resurrection begins by watching, by listening, by learning from other people. Studying others that have been changed. Someone once told me that that we need to follow those who we want to be like. If you have a heart for faith, follow those who have seen the empty tomb. Secondly, I believe we can be changed as we investigate the Christian faith by examining the facts. My favorite part of this account is how critical the details are. I love all the details that John includes. I love that he includes the fact that he got there first. How Mary stood at a distance. Mary stood at a distance and she made a false assumption. But John believed why. Why did John believe that morning? Because he investigated closely. He went into the tomb. He looked at things up close. He saw the linen clothes. He saw how the face cloth was folded separately. John didn't start with face. Many people wrongly think that the disciples all were anticipating the resurrection or that it was easy for them to believe. It was not. He started with a false assumption, but he didn't allow that assumption to prevent him from seeing the clear reality that was right in front of him. See, listen, God does not call us to blind faith. Investigate the resurrection. Investigate the truth of scripture. Investigate the claims of Christianity. Stoop down. Stoop down and look closely. Look into the tomb. Investigate the claims of Christ and the claims of the resurrection. Now, now yes, we we can't go to an empty tomb, but we can still investigate the resurrection. We can't talk to eyewitnesses that were there that morning, but we can investigate the, the historically reliable eyewitness accounts in the New Testament. And so, friends, I say to you this morning, read, study, learn, question, question your faith, question the claims of the resurrection. There are three main historical evidences for the resurrection. The first is the empty tomb. It's a historical fact that Jesus was born, that he was crucified, that he was buried. And even non-believers affirm that three days after his death, the tomb was empty. If it wasn't, then the early church, those that opposed the early church would have produced the body, would have easily put down the claims of the resurrection. They simply would have produced the body, but there was no body. And the question is, how was the tomb empty? Why was there no body? Some say, well, the disciples stole the body, really. Read the gospel accounts. This is a ragtag, faithless, fearful group of people. No way they would have had the the wherewithal to overpower the Roman soldiers, to steal the body, to coordinate some hoax. 
The eyewitness accounts is the second reliable evidence for the resurrection. The New Testament records eyewitness testimony from those that were there. At one point, over 500 people were witness to the risen Lord, testifying to seeing him. And this testimony was made in the, in the face of intense opposition. Many of those eyewitnesses gave their life for their claim, died for what would have been a lie. If they knew it was a lie, but they gave their life because they saw him in the flesh. And thirdly, you can look at the historical impact of the resurrection. See, within, within weeks of Jesus rising from the dead, his resurrection became the foundation of the Christian faith. Not his teaching about love, not his witness, not his, not his miracles, but his resurrection became the foundation of the Christian faith. And skeptics were converted, opponents came to Christ, and a group of untrained, cowardly disciples led a movement that literally transformed the world. And the resurrection was the basis of an explosive and massive growth of the early church that produced radical changes in the religious practices of the Jews and the Romans that was radically altered social structures of the Roman world all because of the resurrection. Now friends, the most reasonable explanation for the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts and the historical impact and growth of the early church is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Only if you presuppose that there is no supernatural world, only if that is your presupposition, can you look at those facts and find an alternate explanation, a far less reasonable explanation I would propose than simply that that what happened, that what the New Testament says happened, happened. And so study the facts, look at the details. Thirdly, study the word of God. If you want to investigate the claims of Christ, study the word of God. Did you see this in verse 9? Look at verse 9. It says that John had to be convinced of the resurrection. Why? Because it says, as yet, he did not understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. In other words, listen to this. If the disciples had been more closely reading their Bibles, if they had been paying attention to the Old Testament, they would have expected the Messiah was going to die and atone for sin and then rise again to conquer sin and death. And not only had the Old Testament scriptures set the stage for the resurrection, but on numerous occasions, Jesus himself had predicted it, but they had not paid attention. It's interesting, you you read Luke's account of these same events after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus met with his disciples, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and Jesus explained to them how the Old Testament foretold that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise again. Now, when John and Jesus himself say that the scriptures foretold his resurrection, they're not thinking of one particular Bible verse in the Old Testament. The entire trajectory of the Old Testament points forward to a Messiah who would suffer and die, who would conquer death and rise again. And now the entire Old Testament, or the entire New Testament looks back to the death and resurrection. You read through the book of Acts, just seven weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter is on the streets of Jerusalem preaching about the resurrection. And he's not just preaching stories, he actually looks to the Old Testament. He preaches a sermon from Psalm 16 and says here, it talks about the resurrection of the Messiah. And so friends, if you want faith, if you're here this morning and you have faith, but you want to grow in your faith, you have to study the Bible. This is not just some book of old stories. This is not just a a to-do list or a rule book. This is God's living word to us. Read it. Read it with an open mind, with an open heart. Ask God to reveal truth to you. Ask him to speak to you, to soften your heart, to build your faith. Because Christ can transform your life 
And just like he did with John, I believe for many of us here today, your life can be transformed as you investigate the faith. That's what happened to a man by the name of Lee Strobel. Many of you know his, his story. You've seen his movie, Case for Christ, or read his books. Back in, in the 1970s, Lee Strobel was a legal affairs journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He had a law degree from Yale. He did not mess around. He was the kind of guy that did not believe anything unless there was evidence. And Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was living a life in the world. Christianity was too disconnected and, and too unfathomable for him to believe. But then something happened that he, he reports he didn't, was not a big fan of. His wife became a Christian. And he saw positive changes in her, but he still thought that she had got wrapped up in a cult. And so he goes to visit church with her one day, hoping to get her out of this cult. But instead, he walked out with a ton of questions. Not with faith, but with questions. And he then, for the next two years, used his legal training and his journalism skills to research and investigate Christianity. And he realized that the central question of the Christian faith was whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And Lee put all of his energy into researching and interviewing experts. And he came to the realization after nearly two years that it would require more faith of him to remain an atheist than to believe in the Christian faith. Because the evidence was so overwhelming. And so in 1981, Lee put his faith in Christ and was forever changed by the resurrection. And he's now dedicated his life to helping others investigate the claims of Christ. And so he's written books the case for Christ, the case for faith, the case for a creator, the case for grace. He just keeps cranking them out. You can find one that speaks to you. Investigate the faith. Ask your questions. Don't be cynical because cynics have a closed mind. You can be skeptical. Skeptics have an open mind. But the truth of Christ will speak to you because the risen Jesus has the power to change you, to change you from the inside out, to give you life. Look at the empty tomb. Listen to the wisdom of others, to those that have met Jesus in your life. Investigate the facts. Study the word of God. Learn who Jesus was and what he's done through his resurrection. I want to turn now and and look at the, the second part of this passage that we read this morning. I want to look and see what happened to Mary. Unlike John, Mary is not immediately changed through investigating. She's changed how? Through an encounter. Look at verse 11. Peter and John leave, and what does Mary do? She stays behind. She's still confused. She's still grieving. She's still standing outside of the tomb, weeping. She doesn't yet have faith. She doesn't yet believe. She's still under the assumption that somebody has stolen the body. Apparently, John had figured it out, but didn't bother telling Mary before he left. And so she's weeping in fear and sadness. But what does it say there? In verse 11, she now stoops down. She now stoops down to take a closer look into the tomb. And what does she see? She sees two angels. We're told in verse 12, inside the tomb. Now angels are supernatural beings created by God. Angels serve God as worshipers, as warriors, as guardians, as messengers. From what we read in the Bible, it seems as though angels are always at work, even when we cannot see them. But at times, they reveal their presence in the natural world, often taking human form. And so Mary sees these two figures. We don't know whether she thought that they were angels, but she seems unfazed. Now, why would she be unfazed? Well, you have to remember, this is Mary. She had been plagued by demons. She had been miraculously healed by Jesus. She had walked with Jesus for three years. She has seen miracle and supernatural divine power from Jesus. So I guess seeing angels was not a big deal to her. And the angels ask her then in verse 13, hey, why are you crying? 
She, rec- she replies, well, I'm crying because someone has, has taken my Lord and I don't know where he is. Still shaken and confused, full of emotion, we see in verse 14 that she turns around and she sees a figure standing in the garden, in the graveyard. And we're told that the figure was Jesus, but Mary doesn't immediately recognize Jesus. Now remember, it's dusk. Her eyes are still full of tears. She's not expecting Jesus. Her vision maybe was was blurred by the tears and by the darkness. But the fact of the matter is she's simply not looking for Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus is no longer in his deteriorated state of suffering that he was hanging on the cross the last time she saw him. But now Jesus is in a perfect glorified body. And so Jesus asks Mary the same question. Woman, why are you crying? What are you looking for? Now I just have to say, if I'm Mary at this point, I'm just irritated. Why is everybody asking me why I'm crying? I'm in a graveyard. The tomb's empty. Isn't it kind of obvious that that something's happening and I'm grieving? Right? But the implication of Jesus' question is not to irritate her, but it's to say, Mary, why are you crying? There's nothing to cry about. There's nothing to grieve. Now, again, she's made an assumption. She assumes that this figure, and I I think based upon the text, she's probably still kneeling down, stooping. She turns and sees the figure and then turns back. But she assumes he's a gardener, not looking at him face to face. And so she says, look, if you've taken away the body, if you know where he is, Will you help me find him? I want to properly anoint him and rebury him. Do you see what's happening? She's so full of grief. She's missing what's right in front of her. Her false assumptions have prevented her from properly evaluating what's going on right in front of her eyes. The grave clothes that John saw didn't stir her. John's faith didn't stir her. The angels didn't stir her. Now Jesus is standing there. She's still missing it. And so what happens in verse 16 at this point, the climax of the story is Jesus realizes Mary's going to need a little help to see what's going on. And so Jesus says one word to her, the shortest sermon that brought about a conversion ever. He just says one word. He looks at her and he says, Mary. Now think about that for a minute. Mary has followed Jesus for years. She's probably heard him say her name hundreds of times. She knows her master's voice. She knows his tone. And he, she knows that he says her name in a way that nobody else does. You know, your spouse or your parent or your, or your sibling or your girlfriend, they say your name and they have a certain tone. And you can tell whether they're irritated or whether they're excited to see you. And she just says, Mary. And in an instant, All that fear drains away. All the sadness drains away. Her confusion is gone. And now it all makes sense. And I imagine everything that Jesus had foretold flooded back into her heart. She now realizes it's Jesus standing before her. He is risen. He's alive. She turns to Jesus and she cries out in her native tongue, Rabboni, teacher. And based on Matthew's account of this interaction, We know that she dropped to her knees. She wraps her arms around Jesus' feet and she's worshiping him. She's tightly holding on to his legs. I imagine never wanting to let go, never wanting to let him out of her sight. And that's why Jesus says in verse 17, don't cling to me, Mary. You have to let me go. I'm not here to stay. I'm still going to go back to my heavenly father. Yes, I'm here now, but I'm not staying. I have an assignment for you. Go tell my brothers, tell the apostles that I'm alive That I will ascend back to my heavenly father. Back to be with our God in his eternal dwelling. And so what does Mary do in verse 18? She listens. She obeys. She rushes back to find the disciples. And she announces, I have seen the Lord. 
I have seen the Lord. And she reports all that Jesus told her. And that morning, Mary was changed. She was never the same because she had had an encounter with the risen Lord. How did she come to believe? Because she met the crucified risen Christ. And again, there's three things that I think we can get out of Mary's interaction and her response that I think each of us need to do as well. Whether you're a person of faith that wants to grow, whether you, you are a skeptic, whether you have questions, whether your faith is dim and faded. First of all, we see that Mary stayed by the tomb. Friends, stay by the tomb. I love this. Because Mary doesn't yet have it figured out. Peter and John go home, but what does she do? She stays there. She still doesn't understand what's happening. She's still making a false assumption, thinking the body's been stolen, but she didn't give up and she didn't leave. She's still grieving. She's still struggling, but she stayed by the place where she knew she was most likely to find answers, most likely to learn the truth, most likely to find what her heart longed for. Friends, I want to say to you today, those that are still investigating the faith, Those who believe but are maybe struggling this morning, struggling to hold on to Jesus, stay by the tomb. Stay close. Don't walk away. Remain in the word of God. Remain close to the followers of Jesus, close to the church, close to where God is. See, if you're here and you're wrestling through what it means to follow Christ, I'm glad you're here. I tell people all the time, this is not a place where you need to pretend to have it figured out. Not a place where you need to act like you have all your questions answered or act like you're checking off all the things off of your list. Friends, Living Hope is a place where you can be real and you can be honest about your questions, about your struggles, about your doubts. The church is the best place to be. And as you're here, keep your heart open. Keep your eyes open. Look for God. You may not have all the answer. Mary didn't. But I promise you, you are more likely to find what your heart longs for by the tomb of Jesus with the people of God than if you just go back home, if you just leave, if you just go live off on your own, thinking that the world somehow will give you answers. Thinking somehow that your own heart or your own thought or your own just isolation is somehow going to miraculously bring you to truth. Stay by this tomb. Stay where God is. Secondly, listen for your name. Listen for your name. Mary remained at the tomb. As, as we've said, she's unsure of what's happening, but I believe her heart is still open. She didn't understand when she saw the angels. She didn't get it when she even saw Jesus. She made a wrong assumption. Oh, it's the gardener. She thinks her, his body's been stolen, but yet when Jesus finally calls out to her, her heart is open. When she hears her name, she's ready to respond. And so I would say this morning, if you don't have faith, if you're struggling in your faith, ask God. If you cannot hear God, you say, I've asked him before and his voice is silent. Ask him for ears to hear. Ask him to speak in a way that maybe you have not seen or have not heard. Please, please don't close your heart to God. Don't ignore the possibility that God is real. Don't ignore the possibility that Jesus truly did rise from the dead, that he's alive even now at work in our lives. Don't ignore the reality that he can call you, that he can give you life. See, ultimately, if any of us, whether you've been a Christian for a week, for a decade, for a lifetime, if any of us is going to be changed by the resurrection, transformed by the risen Christ, this will only happen when Jesus calls us by name. Jesus said in in John chapter 10, he said, he's the good shepherd. He said, the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and the sheep know his voice. 
The New Testament says that God knows who belong to him, that he loves them, and he calls each and every one of us to follow him. And so keep your heart open. Listen for God's voice. Don't allow unbelief to close off your heart or close off your ears to God. Don't allow the distractions of the world to lure you into thinking that God must not be real, or if he is real, he's irrelevant. Don't allow false assumptions to keep you in a position of of being closed-minded. Don't allow your selfish ambition to think that you have to figure it out on your own. Don't allow skepticism to prevent you from looking to God, asking God, listening for His voice. Because I assure you of this, when the Holy Spirit calls you, He will call you by name. Like Mary, it will be personal, it will be intimate, it will be powerful, and it will be undeniable. You too can encounter the risen Christ. Thirdly, I love what Mary does. She, she tells others. If you want to be changed through an encounter, go tell others what you've seen. It may seem odd that the first thing or the second thing Jesus says to Mary is don't cling to me. But he knows that his plan is not to stay with her. He's not even going to stay on earth. He's going to go back to heaven to be with his father. And he's going to send Mary and each of his disciples out on mission. And so Mary follows the instructions of Jesus that morning. She goes to fulfill her mission. She runs back into Jerusalem. She finds where the disciples are hidden. And she says, I have seen the Lord. Can you imagine the impact that that made on them? Yet she's the very first one. John has figured it out. He's he's convinced that Jesus is alive. But Mary was the first one to to see him, to be an eyewitness. And I can tell you from experience that not only... Did Mary reporting her encounter with Jesus, not only did that encourage the other disciples, but I can assure you it encouraged her as well. See, every time I have an opportunity to tell someone else about who Jesus is, about how I've encountered him in my life, how he's changed me, it seals, it confirms, it enlightens what God has done in my own heart. And if you've been changed this morning by the resurrection, God now calls you to go and tell. And and not just... Christianity is true, not just Jesus is risen, but I have seen him. Do you see how it's personal? I have seen him. He has come into my life. He has changed me. Tell others how you've been transformed. Tell others how Jesus has changed your life and watch as it solidifies your faith. Watch as God affirms and blesses and encourages you. Because I know this morning that Jesus has changed my life. I've known him for as long as I can remember. I I grew up in a a church, it was a church that was much better than this because our church had pews. And when you're a little kid in church, pews are great because there's tons of stuff to play with. And each one has a little rack, right, with hymnals, with little golf pencils, with little offering envelopes that you can draw on and color and make paper airplanes. Anybody have pews with the little the little holders for the cups where you can put the communion cup and you can pull out the little rubber insert and play with that and throw it at your brother? You know what I'm talking about, Pete. And so I grew up hearing and, and I grew up believing. I remember even as a young, as a young boy lying in bed, aware of the Lord, aware of his voice calling me. And I remember some of the earliest ways that he changed me. I was, I was a spaz when I was a kid. I had a horrible temper. I was the kid always breaking stuff, flipping the monopoly board, getting in trouble for losing my temper. And I remember probably like a, a, a late adolescent, early teenager, just praying like, God, I'm going to, I'm going to get arrested. Like you have to help me out here. Will you, will you take away my temper? And after trying, after being disciplined by my parents, I believe that God miraculously removed my anger and removed my temper. That is until I had kids and then somehow it came back. But 
The Lord worked. He answered my prayer. He, he transformed me, removing that, that volatile temper. In high school and college, I continued to follow the Lord, but I met my fair share of struggles and temptations and doubts. I fell into to sinful habits as a young man. I spent times as a philosophy major at the University of Maryland. I spent times wondering if it was all true, exploring my doubts. But but I could never truly walk away. I could never truly walk away from the Lord or walk away from the people of God. But I remember one summer in college, I, I had in many ways decided that summer just to live on my own, to follow my own whims and my own desires. And you know what I found? I found pain. I found guilt. I found shame. I found hopelessness. And I remember going to my pastor and I remember going and confessing and, and, and crying out to him, wanting faith, wanting reassurance. And he prayed with me and I encountered Jesus again that day in a new way. And it affirmed my faith. Friends, stay close. Stay close to the people of God. Watch their example. Learn from them. Pray to God. Read your word. And once you've seen Jesus, tell others what you have seen. Because each of us can be changed by the resurrection. Now look, I know we can't go investigate an empty tomb like the early disciples did. I know we can't go touch Jesus in the flesh like Mary did, but we can be convinced. You can know him. You can be changed. God can open your eyes. He can open your heart. And all that he asks is look. Look up to him. Look for Jesus. Let his Holy Spirit fill you. Be open to the power of the resurrection, even today, transforming you. See, life with God is life that's sharing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the worship team's going to come again and we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate and we're going to thank God for who he is and what he's done. And as we do that, I would ask you to cry out to God for hope. Ask him to transform you wherever you walked in this morning, whether a person of faith or a person of doubts, whether strong in your faith or struggling, ask God to give you hope. Cry out to him to restore your peace, to, to reassure you of forgiveness, to fill your heart with joy that today could be a fresh start, a new identity, a new purpose, not just a nice Easter, but a transformed life in your family, in your home, in your work, now and into eternity. Would you follow the risen Savior? Would you live for him on mission? This is what Jesus said in in John chapter 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, everyone who believes in me will never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Will you be transformed? Stand with me. Let's pray together as we prepare to sing. Father in heaven, we thank you for this gospel account. For the testimony of these disciples that struggled and wrestled through faith. We thank you for John who looked closely. For Mary who stayed and waited and met Jesus. Would you now come and make yourself known to us? That we might encounter you in our heart. That we would know you as Savior and Lord. Even as we worship you now. Even as we lift up this song and this prayer to you. Fill us with faith. Fill us with courage. That we could live on mission. Yes, we'll struggle. Yes, we may still have doubts. But help us to know with certainty that you love us, that you came for us, that you're a good God. We worship you, King Jesus. Come, risen Savior, and be present in our hearts. Amen.